Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is Thursday, December 9th. You can't hear me? Ben, you can't hear me? I hear you, but I just can't hear... Oh, you can't I hear can the hear music? You. I just can't hear the little sounds. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Take 52. Face coverings. Sit up! Sit up! You heard that, right? There we go. <laughs> yes. Okay. Your, your Ben Jarofsky show <laughs> for Thursday, December 9th, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana. Yes. The Chicago Federation of Labor. Yes. The Chicago <laughs> Teachers Union. Yes. And of course, Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of reefer to smoke. It's true. And so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program or to download, I don't know, over a thousand episodes, chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A. V is in victory, S-K-Y. It is Thursday, December 9th, and pre-recorded from my apartment and his attic, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Times a charm. Today on the program, in these times, writer Miles Camp Lassen. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this kick him out of the club Thursday. And here's why because I feel like I should leave the club. Get kicked out of the club. I've, D, I've destroyed all credibility I have uh, as a journalist in this town. I must make this confession. I have destroyed every ounce of mainstream credibility I have as a journalist in this town. I will never, ever, ever be hired by anything resembling <laughs> a mainstream outlet. And my crime? Here's my crime, D. I want Jesse Smollett to get off. I said it, Dave. I said it. <laughs> get out of the club. That's the sound. <laughs> I was barely hanging on anyway. I, was, I, I mean, I was like barely invited into the club. Not really even invited. In. Like, like, all right, you can come to the meetings, but you're not officially a member. You have to sit in the corner. Uh, good? Yes, in that corner. And you know, I was just thinking about this, D, because there was a picture in today's Sun Times, which I will show you. Look. Thank you. There you go. Oh, nice. And it was over a column by uh, the great Mark Brown. 
and about county Democrats uh, want written loyalty pledges from candidates seeking the party's endorsement. And I'm not going to deal with that subject at the moment. It's a fascinating subject, which I could deal with at another time. I just want to talk about the picture. The picture is an old picture that shows Cook County uh, uh, Democratic Party chair, Tony Preckwinkle, former assessor Joe Berrios, who used to be the party chair, uh, and Ed Burke, <laughs> alderman of the 14th Ward, uh, and former real big shot in the Democratic Party, pretty much responsible for uh, naming all the judges. And... The conventional wisdom of mainstream journalism in Chicago is like within a, up to like a two years ago, let's say. Prankwinkle was okay. Burke was okay. Barry else, no, not okay. It's sort of like, like conventional Chicago mindset is that there's certain politicians that you're supposed to universally disdain and criticize and rip. And Barrios is one of them. Well, Miles was here. He seems to have left the meeting. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure who pissed him off. It, it, <laughs> I, he kicked me out of the club, too. You know, and so uh, John Stroger was one of those. Todd Stroger was another one. So what you're just universal. Like, if you want your card to work in Chicago, you got to denounce them. And every Chicago journalist feels compelled to denounce them. And I'm like, well, why would I denounce Berrios and not denounce Ed Burke? And for a while, remember, Ed Burke was the great Ed Burke, the smartest alderman in the city council, the brains that helps Mayor Rahm pass his budget. Remember those days, D? Remember when he had the fundraiser and every powerful person showed up? Yeah. And you were like, man, I wish I could have made it. But you had first Tuesday. (laughs) No, I think I had a show. All right, Miles Confleson is back. I always get a little nervous when guests disappear. So, so you know, I was already uh, on the verge of getting kicked out of the club because I'm like, why? Why am I supposed to disdain Joe Berrios and not disdain Ed Burke? And I know a lot of my out of town listeners are going, "What is he talking about? This is like Chicago names." And I just try to. It, it's the same thing at a national level, people. There are certain characters that you, as good demi-dems, are supposed to hate. And there are other characters that you're supposed to love. And so I'm already out with the demi-dems because I cannot stand their leader, the guy they revere, they love, Bill Clinton. And I've just, like, I can't take another minute of Bill Clinton. That's, so now I'm out with the demi-dems. And here in Chicago, I'm out with, you know, the conventionals. Because I, what's, I always like Joe Berrios. Why is why am I supposed to hate Joe Berrios and revere Ed Burke until he got indicted? Then you're supposed to not like Ed Burke anymore. That's just like the little things you're supposed to do in Chicago, the conventional wisdom that you're supposed to follow. And this leads me to Jesse Smollett. And this is just one step too far, but I've been thinking about it and talking about it. I'm going to write a column about it. I hope he gets off. Now, as I sit here, uh, the jury, I think, is still uh, deliberating. Uh, and so none of them are presumably listening to the Ben Jarofsky show. So <laughs> I'm not going to influence them in any way. And I'm not saying I think he's innocent. I've been kind of closely following the coverage uh, of the trial. Good job, Andy Grimm in the Chicago Sun-Times and Jacob Meisner uh, in the Tribune. I've been following your coverage. You know, very improbable tale uh, that Jesse is uh, spinning. But I don't care. I think it's freaking overkill. 
I think it's absolutely ridiculous that this has gotten this far. This spectacle, which is largely a political tool to hammer away at Kim Fox because she was foolish enough to take a phone call from Tina Chen way back when. Powerful people using their influence with other powerful people were outraged when Kim Fox does it. But when Mayor Rahm does it, oh, that's the virtue of having a big Rolodex, right? I mean, it's the same thing. Chicago's like the double standards. We are supposed to hate burials, but revere Ed Burke. We're supposed to really dislike John and Todd Stroger, but we love Richard M. Daly. What's with that, Chicago? You got that double standard, and it's like embedded in your brain. You're brainwashed, Chicago. I'm just saying, you're brainwashed. And I say that with all due respect. I love you. I've been here since 1981, but you're brainwashed. Like some people you like, some people you don't like. So that standard refrain, you got to say, Justice Smollett must be punished for his crime. And I'm like, this is the crime? This is why we spent thousands and thousands of police hours, thousands and thousands of court hours mounting the case? Because he made up a crime? Let's face it, folks. This was an att- this was exploited by politicians from the center right to undercut the credibility of Kim Fox, and she left herself vulnerable. I do I cannot hide from that. She left herself vulnerable, but it was exploited and exaggerated to undercut her credibility and the credibility of the whole what criminal justice justice movement just undercut the credibility of anybody who said, hey, maybe we should just lock lock everybody up, throw away the key. It's funny, Republicans have that attitude when their necks are on the line. Kyle Rittenhouse goes and kills two people in Wisconsin. Let them go. They deserved it. Insurrectionists take over the Capitol. Come on. They were just expressing their First Amendment protected rights to do what they want. Donald Trump withholds information from Congress, doesn't pay his taxes, allegedly rapes a woman in New York. Oh, come on. Innocent until proven otherwise. But Jesse Smollett, oh, my God, this is an outrage. So that's it. Miles, I just had to get that off my chest. I'm going to bring you into conversation. I know. I know you're you feel free to vigorously disagree with me, if you will. We have plenty to talk about at the national level. I know you want to talk about Miles Conflasser from In These Times. Uh, very good friend of the show. Comes on all the time. Editor, writer. But, Miles, I just had to get that off my chest. I hope he walks. I hope he walks. And Because when I read the – Miles, when I read what the prosecutors say or what the experts say, he's barely going to get anything anyway. So all this was <laughs> – I'm like, he'll probably get probation. So what was this all about? This rushed for the retrial. We have to have a trial. He must be properly convicted to show what? There's no double standards in Illinois criminal justice. The whole freaking system's rife with double standards. There's guys locked up every day for doing stuff that you, my friends, do every night. (laughs) Just don't get locked up for it. But we're going to make an example with Justice Smollett. So, Miles, I've had it. I'm just, whether he's guilty or not, I hope he is acquitted. 
your thoughts. Right now, you know, American democracy is probably facing its biggest threats um, in my lifetime, certainly in, in many decades. Um, there's a looming climate catastrophe that's already uh, causing, you know, massive humanitarian disasters across the globe. And uh, domestically, we have a far right that is, you know, ascendant, uh, that is dead set on repealing uh, all the progressive gains made over the past half of a century. Um, and yet, as you point out, our media ecosystem and certainly um, our, pol- our political system is obsessed with Jesse, Sm- Jesse Smollett. It's all, you know, it's a saturation, basically. Um, and it's all ginned up. So I completely agree with you that the priorities are incredibly out of whack and the amount of attention that's been paid to this case, just it's absurd. I mean, you know, just look at, and, and you were completely correct to point out the, not the, the, uh, uh, a lot of attention too. Um, but that was, you know, somebody who killed people on the streets, you know, in cold blood and then was, uh, 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 let off. Um, this is somebody who, you know, is a, a allegedly staged a hate crime against themselves, and it was used as a political tool by uh, by the right, effectively. I mean, certainly by conservatives in Illinois to try to uh, take down Kim Fox. That didn't work. And now we're just seeing it replay in the public eye. And, you know, I generally personally am more of like anti-carceral. I don't think that punishment is the solution to all of our problems, certainly not shoving more people into the criminal justice system. Um, So I tend to agree with you. I don't think that, you know, there's much, uh, you know, besides certain cases, I, I don't think that um, any type of, you know, in putting people into the criminal justice system, certainly not incarcerating them, um, will solve any of these deeper issues um, that, that give rise to them. And I mean, <laughs> I think it, the punishment for Jesse's crimes, we've all been punished now for whatever Jesse did. <laughs> I haven't to read about this crap and have it in our faces for so many weeks and months now. I think we should just be done with it, say goodbye and uh, move on. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, we, st- we still have the last, uh, chapter i suppose to be written and that will be uh the um the jury verdict and lord knows where it's going to go from there uh because there's still a lawsuit pending i don't know if you, you follow this uh miles uh, mayor rahm initiated this lawsuit god what a hypocrite oh my goodness uh mayor rahm initiated this lawsuit where the city of chicago is trying to retrieve from justice Smollett the money uh, they spent to police hours uh investigating his hate crime which would be interesting if he's acquitted you know, so <laughs> wait, uh, it, so it really was a hate crime. So it wasn't money uh, ill spent. Uh, so we're we're not over with this one yet. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, I know you you want to move on uh, from it. But that was just it's really been on my mind. And I know what you're saying is true, Miles. There's so many other more pressing, important issues to discuss. But I just feel as though sometimes we're all being gaslit. You get what I'm saying? I mean, this is the front page news and has been for the last week in the two downtown mainstream newspapers. This is the lead item on the local news. This is literally what people are talking about. And you and I can have a learned discussion, uh, which I hope we will uh, soon uh, go on and have uh, about the larger problems that we're facing as a country. But this is what people are being fed. You know, what I mean? this is Jussie Smollett. 
Jean-Jean well, it's, a, it's enough, Ben, to make you want to turn the front of the sometimes over to the back and read about Ayodesumu, Chicago's own, you know, taking over the Windy City. I can <laughs> start to tell why, you know, people just turn to the sports page at this point if all they're reading about is Jesse Gate. Uh, yes, by the way, uh, I want to thank the Sun-Times for finally jumping on the uh, uh, I.O. bandwagon with that uh, that great uh, back cover uh, that uh, Miles just alluded to. Uh, I.O., the pride and joy of Morgan Park High School, was featured uh, prominently in yesterday's bright one. So it took him a little while to get on the bandwagon, Miles. But uh, as I say with all people in the city of Chicago, uh, you're always welcome on the Chicago Bulls bandwagon. All right, let's move to the really tough, serious news of the day that's got me uh, so depressed. And yet, let's hope we see some light uh, that will enlighten me and make me feel better in you as well, Miles. Uh, you sent me an essay uh, written by a professor uh, it was in the New York Times, uh, Rubin, uh, and uh, Corey Rubin, and he was talking about the failures of the Joe Biden administration, and he was sort of uh, placing those failures into a larger analysis of trends and. Uh, in politics in this country. And he, he positioned it in such a way that I hadn't thought about it uh, before. And that is, we are still very much, um, what, under the influence of the Ronald Reagan view of the world in which uh, government is distrusted and uh, corporations and private entities are elevated in stature. Uh, as the saviors of our country uh, and our taxation policies, et cetera, are, are encouraged to uh, reduce the amount they pay, presumably so they can invest more in their companies. This is the, the propaganda, the rhetoric, uh, as opposed to pocketing it. Uh, and then the government is starved, essentially, of the money it needs uh, to adequately meet the needs of people. We could just see that in this health crisis we're having since the pandemic. Um Talk a little bit, a uh, little bit more about Miles, uh, the themes uh, that he was getting at in their practicalities uh, in today's po uh, politics. Yeah, I think the one of the reasons it's important to reflect at this point back, we're almost a year into the Biden presidency. Um, we've moved on from you know the deep Trump era, which consumed our politics for. Um, over four years, really. I mean, Donald Trump kind of remains a national figure, but, you know, in 2015, he was already pretty dominant even before he um, won office. And now we're, we're uh, in the Biden era. And I think it's important to take stock of what that means and where things stand, because um, there was a moment, I think you remember it, Ben, when uh, Joe Biden obviously campaigned as a centrist. He uh, went through the primaries and he said, uh, you know, promised groups of bankers and CEOs that nothing would fundamentally change if he was president. And yet, you know, he came into office in the midst of the COVID crisis and seemed to offer a change. He seemed to pivot, you know, and say he wanted to be a transformational president. Previously, he talked about being a transitional uh, president, meaning, you know, trying to pass the baton to younger generation. In my mind, I would hope that would be people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, I think in his mind, it was more the Pete Buttigieg's of the world he wanted to transition into. But, um, but once he, he got into office, he, he made all uh, these gestures towards uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal era and said, you know, he wanted to um, really change the trajectory 
of American politics. Now, we've heard this before. I think, you know, when Obama was even running, he said that, you know, he basically admitted that Ronald Reagan changed the direction of American politics in a way Bill Clinton never did. Um, and, you know, kind of set up that he was aspiring to do that as well. Looking back, I think it's quite clear while there were plenty of, you know, progressive victories in the Obama era and his presidency symbolized much to uh, millions of people, it wasn't transformational, you know, it didn't change the trajectory of where we were headed uh, and certainly not the type of political ideology that dominated um, Washington and, you know, debates and economic policy and what have you. And, you know, it also led, you know, when Obama was in office, the Democratic Party got decimated and then Donald Trump got elected. So clearly it was not, you know, setting up, setting us up on a progressive path forward. But uh, all that said, you know, when uh, Biden was coming into office January 2021, um, there was some hope that he was really going to offer something different. You know, I, it's hard to imagine him as a revolutionary, you know, as, as this long creature of the U S Senate. Um, and yet the political winds were kind of moving in that direction. Even Trump oversaw sending out direct cash payments to millions of Americans, um, in the cares act. And then Biden followed that up with the American rescue plan. Um, now we're seeing the fruit of that, which is the fastest economic recovery, um, you know, in recent American history, we're seeing, you know, unemployment numbers uh, fall, we're seeing uh, wages rise, really positive economic, and people's savings are up. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons for the increased amount of labor action across the country, too. You know, we're seeing uh, uh, more and more strikes, um, more and more workers willing to walk off the job. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that household incomes went up after people got, you know, the stimulus payments earlier this year. So they have a little bit um, saved up. So there's a lot of positive economic news. And yet we're still seeing this malaise around the Biden presidency. You know, this sense that we're stuck, that's nothing, that, that, that nothing is happening, that nothing can get done. And uh, his approval ratings are in the trash you know, as, a, as a result of it, which is a terrible place to be on the you know lead up to a midterm election where your party could you know is likely to get decimated um, at the ballot box anyway, judging by historical trends. So why is that? You know why you know why is Joe Biden in this position of being? you know, overseeing really positive economic news. And if you look back since Pew started polling, the top issue every in every election year um, is the economy. That's what voters always say. It's usually like 80 percent of voters say their top issue is the economy. Well, by all like macroeconomic figures, the economy is doing pretty well. And yet Biden's numbers are in the trash and people are, you know, really uh, at wit's end about how to you know, change this. And the only advice that seems to be getting the White House's ear is all these centrist Democrats saying you've gone too far left, you know. Meanwhile, his actual agenda, the things that he ran on, whether it's paid family leave or um, expanding health care, providing universal pre-K, all the things that are contained in the um, human infrastructure agenda, the Build Back Better Act, those are stalled out in the Senate. Um, and so I think it's important for us to like look at what's actually at play as to why, you know, Biden's in this uh, situation and the Democrats are as a result. Because if you look to the right, all they're going to say is that it's culture war stuff, you know, that, that, that they're, that's defund the police and it's, you know, trans rights and it's all identity based wokeness is the reason that, um, 
Democrats are screwed. But that's just, I, I think that there's a, a, a deeper answer to that. And I think that that um, Corey Robin piece really kind of um, gave some insight into what those deeper reasons are. And, and exactly what are those deeper reasons to be a little more precise? For sure. I think that there's no doubt that our, you know, there's lag time in between when policies are passed and implemented and acted, and then people actually feel the, the result of them. So on some level, I want to give Biden credit in that, like, finally, some of these bigger investments that were made in the American Rescue Plan are starting to, you know, trickle down to people. The biggest thing you could do, I think, to help people out is, you know, more direct payments, like we saw with the, um, with, uh, you know, what happened in the ARP when they sent out checks to people. I mean, I think we should be doing a lot more of that. Um, but the deeper reasons are that Biden has not really uh, put his full force in trying to transform the direction of this country. And instead, with kind of this retrenchment into preserving the, the centrist democratic role in directing the party. And what that, you know, adds up to is the fact that there's no challenging of the role of corporate power in deciding, you know, who, how policy gets made. You can stack that up to, you know, mansion and cinema stopping things like Medicare expansion from getting into the, uh, or at least full fledged Medicare expansion, getting into the, um, build back better bill, but where, you know, Biden is the president and he has not been working to change, you know, the actual political wins himself. He's just standing by as more of a observer. I give him some credit for, you know, appointments and, you know, trying to get some things done, but if we're going to look at the structural disadvantages that the Democratic Party faces right now, I mean, the Republican, the, the Wyoming with like, you know, half a million people has the same amount of senators as California with 43 million people. Like that is anti-democratic by nature. We've got the Electoral College, the, you know, Al Gore won more votes than George Bush. Hillary Clinton won more votes than Donald Trump. And yet, you know, th- th- these type of actual structural issues are not being dealt with. Look at the filibuster. The reason we can't have votes on things like voting rights reform, like expanding, you know, uh, the amount of senators by including Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico as states. The reason we can't get these things done that would actually change the trajectory of American politics or the Supreme Court, for that matter, is because there's basic structures that have not gone challenged. Um, when we saw the, you know, 14th Amendment get passed. We saw the Wagner Act get passed. These are things that actually changed institutions in the United States and made progressive advancements possible. They also, I mean, a critical part of that, which Robin talks about in that article, is that they had movements behind them, right? And we don't really have a cohesive, like, left movement that is working in tandem with Biden to get these things done. But there's plenty of grassroots organizing happening, especially around um, voting rights and racial justice. And yet we've seen basically no action on that. I mean, we've spent the past year talking about infrastructure and yet the only thing that passed was this watered down, you know, bipartisan bill that has been cheered on by corporate America. And what, whereas we've stalled out on the other stuff, like the first year of a presidency is generally when things get done, if they're going to get done. And I think we've seen very little, um, in the way of the kind of transformational change that was initially on offer from Biden. And I think that's why we're in this funk or malaise. I, uh, as you were talking, I was uh, taking notes 
uh, and uh, sort of uh, uh, getting specifics to what are those general pronouncements that you were making. And I think you're really on to something here. So I'll just put this out there. The Republican Party, uh, Roe v. Wade was uh, ruled on, decided, what was it, 1973. Okay, so that was when abortion uh, effectively became legal throughout the country. Uh, so that was 40 odd years ago. And now the uh, Supreme courts are about to obliterate it. There were 40 odd years of Republicans just without wavering, constantly attacking Roe v. Wade, uh, dedicating all their efforts and energies to electing politicians that would join them uh, to uh, in that effort uh, to nominate and improve uh, judges that would uh, champion that cause. And now they're on the virtue, uh, uh, on the verge, excuse me, of their great triumph. I wrote three things down that became have been obvious to anyone uh, who is a Democratic strategist that the Dems uh, should be uh, sort of like a long-term interest. One, electoral college. Two, the filibuster. Three, packing the court, the Supremes. They've done nothing on any of those fronts. Uh, and so, Miles, I offer that contrast. The Republican initiative on abortion, where they just, they have turned the tides. And this, this they're about to achieve their greatest dream. The eradication of Roe. And then they're going to go after abortion laws in every state of the union. Uh, this would be curious how they run it in Illinois, how they try to finesse their way uh, around that in Illinois, which is very much uh, a, a pro-choice state. But you're right. I don't see Democrats. We talk about this all the time with another guest. David Ferris comes on the show. And he, we talk about the tactics of the Democrats. I don't see the Democrats embracing any of these long-term strategic initiatives uh, by, that the Republicans have followed. As I see it, Democrats, they, they have like skirmishes and then they retreat and they move a little to the right. They uh, admonish any lefty who is irritated at them for moving to the right to shut up and get in line. And then they're surprised when the Republicans are on the verge of overturning Roe. I think you're on to something. I think the Democrats have no long-term strategy whatsoever about dealing with the larger problems that are in this country uh, that they say they want to solve. Your thoughts? I, I, sadly, I think that there, you know, one might look at that state of affairs and see, like, you know, look at the gerrymandering that's happening right now across the country. It's very similar to what happened after the 2010 census where Republicans basically locked in a decade's worth of um, control over state legislatures and, um, and within, within state governments because they were able to, you know, redistrict and figure that out for themselves because they held some political power. Um, we're looking at a far darker next you know, decade based on the gerrymandering that's happened already, let alone the ability of the right to control the Senate and the House for, you know, election cycles to come. Uh, in addition to, you know, the presidency, I mean, Trump's already installing legislatures that are 
um, or installing people in political positions from, you know, not even holding political power. Um, Trump has been backing people that claim that they will work to overturn election results if they don't benefit the right, basically pledging fealty to Trump um, and the expectation that he runs again in 2024 or, you know, somebody like him will run, but probably him, um, and that he'll need them in the case of a, you know, like 2020 uh, situation where he, if he flips enough state legislatures to put in their own, you know, board of electors, they would be able to hand him the presidency, whatever. That's like kind of, you know, still in the future, you know, it's hard to project that far ahead and see if that's going to happen. But regardless, the democratic party is in a perilous, you know, state of affairs in terms of its likelihood of holding on to federal power in the, in the years to come. You'd think that would be a red alarm, you know, and that the party would see it and think, wow, we have to take dramatic action now in order to stop this. They could have done that, you know, initially. It could have been the first item on their agenda when they came in in um, 2021 and said, we're going to pass the For the People Act. We're going to, you know, stop this um the partisan gerrymandering. I mean, there was elements of that bill that would have done that and they didn't do it. So now we already are locked in with these, you know, partisan redistricted maps and a lot of the um, restrictions on voting are most likely going to go forward unless Democrats really quickly figure out how to either break the filibuster or find another way to get that bill through. But they didn't. And I think the reason is not that these establishment Democrats don't get it. It's that they think, they can peel off enough people in the suburbs to get to keep like enough centrist Democrats in office um, that it's OK, you know, that they'll just weather the storm for however long and not worry about the fact that this is, um, you know, our, th- that's foundational to America, this idea that we have a political representation that represents the will of the people. And yet that is being so um, washed over in our current political moment. Um, I think that's the thing, you know, you brought up uh, Roe v. Wade as like, you know, this goal, this object of uh, the right that they've been pursuing for decades. Um, I think the Democrats need to just kind of enshrine democracy. That should be uh, their goal if they have any hopes of um, being able to enact other policies. I mean, I think there's plenty of other, I think we should have Medicare for all. I think we should eliminate poverty. I think there should be other, you know, lodestars for the party as well. But in terms of like having some vision moving forward, I think that has to be at the heart of it. And yet we're just not seeing the, uh, the urgency either from the white house or from the, the party writ large. We are seeing it on the grassroots. I mean, there's already groups that are, I mean, look, Stacey Abrams running for governor. There's groups across the country that are, working to you know sign more people up to vote but it seems like the Demo- that is the democrats like preferred approach is just like do like voter mobilization as if that can somehow outdo the structural disparities in our our political ecosystem i just don't think that that's a recipe for success well and i'll just go uh, voter mobilization democrats like voter mobilization uh when it's a statewide uh, effort uh, against a Republican, but on the local level, they don't like voter mobilization. And I've spent most of my uh, career uh, miles chronicling local politics, Chicago politics, and I've watched the Democrats behave <laughs> like Republicans when it comes to undermining democracy in the city of Chicago, discouraging people uh, from voting, it's sort of feeding the sense of apathy 
uh, I think that's how Democrats win on the local level in, in cities like Chicago. And then all of a sudden they turn around on a dime and they say, oh, everybody come out and vote in, in Wisconsin against Trump. Uh, and they're surprised when it's not that fast. Uh, I got to ask you about something, which I think I asked you about the last time you were on the show. But this has really been uh, a plan in my mind. Love to get your thoughts about this. And I know I think we had a conversation about uh, Elon Musk uh, and uh, Bernie Sanders. Pretty sure I had that conversation with you. I've had so many conversations, I can't remember who sometimes. But uh, pretty sure it was with you. Uh, Elon Musk, of course, one of the wealthiest men in the world, if not. I, I don't know if he's one or two at the moment. Uh, and uh, he did a little trash talking regarding Bert to Bernie uh, on his Twitter account sort of uh, mocking Bernie he goes, Oh, I didn't realize he was still alive. So obviously Bernie was uh, get sticking the needle in and uh, Elon Musk was worried about tax law. Who knows why he felt compelled to take a shot at Bernie. Uh, but when I view uh, Elon Musk as a figure and see uh, sort of like almost a populist appeal he has, which is very bizarre and weird, twisted on a use of the word populism. I'm starting to think uh, that, the adoration Americans have for wealth and for making money. And we see it on display all the time in many TV shows. Uh, I think part of that's what the, this fascination with Justice Smollett, because he's a well-to-do celebrity. We're obsessed with well-to-do celebrities. Um, I think Americans have an adoration for wealth, uh, Miles, that really undercuts the efforts of people like Bernie Sanders to think collective, to get us to think collectively, to get us to think, oh, this is in our all of our interest, our best interest to have a national health care policy. And I remember the debate for 2019 uh, where, um, <laughs> where uh, Joe Biden and the centrists were saying, no, uh, Amy Klobuchar was saying this as well. I remember this one. So, no, people like their individual health care. <laughs> and I, I, I just shook my head and try not to like do everything I could not to laugh at that when they were saying it at the time. Uh, but I do believe it is just, it's pretty obvious, uh, Miles, that uh, like this reverence we have for wealth uh, is also a deterrent. Uh, your thoughts on this? Yeah, our, our culture has been uh, inundated with. Um, treating wealth as the ultimate uh, goal for in American life. Um, if you look back into American history, all the you know stories we were fed of Horatio Alger and you know pulling yourself up by your bootstraps to retaining great wealth, it's like a fantasy, but it's a compelling one because who doesn't want to be rich? Um, and, you know, who doesn't want to have all the luxuries and be able to travel to space on a whim and have a, you know, a yacht for your, like a secondary yacht for your main yacht, like, uh, Jeff Bezos has, um, at, you know, we should all be able to take part in the spoils of, you know, the, the world around us, uh, to some degree, as long as it doesn't destroy the, the, the planet, I'd say. Um, and yet, you know, it's a fantasy to believe that everybody is one day away from being a millionaire. You know, they just need to like hit the jackpot or, you know, have catch a break or something like that. Um, I think the, that is being fed to, you know, through mass 
culture and therefore, you know, into mass politics, this message of wealth adulation. That said, I mean, Elon Musk is a idiot, you know, and kind of a, and a fool. And like, you know, if you look at him on Rogan, like smoking that spliff, like he just comes off as, you know, he's all like, into like these like transhumanist ideas and singularity. And like, maybe, maybe we're all just, you know, working in a simulation and someone else's dream. It's like, yeah, dude, maybe, but like, that's not helping anybody, you know, or, or you know, it's certainly not. Uh, productive way to, you know, use your great wealth and stature in the world. Um, and I think that that's pretty obvious to most people. I mean, you could, you could still want to be rich, but I don't think you necessarily want to be like Elon Musk because he's like, I, I don't, he's obsessed with himself. And I think that that's true for a lot of these, you know, uber wealthy billionaires. They like are trying to build a world in which they are the star. Right. And I think that probably comes out of their own issues from growing up and being, uh, you know, nerds or whatever. And then also reading a lot of sci-fi and trying to build that world, a world in which they get to control things. And on a a deeper level, I think that that's kind of like a dark way in which our digital world is moving into things like the metaverse and, you know, the, these worlds created by billionaires in their um, image because that's, you know, it's all about escape and trying to create, you know, dual worlds or something where they don't have to deal with the actual issues at hand of like people in poverty complaining about wealth inequality and all the issues that Bernie Sanders brings up. Um, But those issues are still the issues people care about most. You know, I think that, you know, I brought up like people saying they care about the economy earlier Uh, in every election what they mean by that i think is different from what people like political strategists mean when they say the economy because it's such an abstraction anyway you know catch-all term but they usually mean things like gdp and you know macroeconomic job growth or something like that when people think about the economy and say they care about it they mean like you know housing insecurity and food insecurity and their own you know dealing with student debt and like the way that the economy touches them the actual material elements of it and i think that's what people care about the most i mean you might want to read up on celebrity culture and be fascinated by it but in terms of like day-to-day issues i think that the things that bernie sanders and and left-wing politicians speak to of the day-to-day struggles of working class people uh, resonates far more than the message of somebody like um, like Elon Musk. And are you encouraged by some of the trends you're seeing on the on the local level in this line? Like you think about the upcoming congressional races, uh, when you think about the uh, upcoming legislative races, and just down the road we'll have some more municipal uh, elections. Are you encouraged by the signs that you see right now in Illinois and Chicago area? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, I don't know. It's uh, not to get too deep in it. I think, you know, Delia Ramirez is probably going to be the uh, next congressperson uh, from the newly drawn third district, is it? Um, here in Illinois. And uh, uh, look, a couple of bright spots that I think that fall, you know, into my broader message here. In, in Seattle, there was just this um, intense recall campaign against Shama Sawant, who was the socialist city council person. Um, in Seattle, she's kind of made a name for herself, both by working to pass a $15 minimum wage there when she was successful, you know, as the first, um, I think, bot, bot city government body to, to pass a municipal $15 wage. 
years ago, and then also to work to tax Amazon, which is obviously based in Seattle. That has not made her many friends, certainly within the realm of you know the upper elite uh, establishment. And so there's this Republican-backed recall campaign against her. This is the second one now. Um, and it looks like at first it looked like she was definitely going to lose that, but numbers are still coming in today and she is almost evened it out. And it looks like she might pull that out. That is a very positive thing of showing like, you know, you can fight against these massive corporate behemoths, um, on a left-wing message and not be, you know, punished uh, for it. So that's, you know, that's, that's one thing. And then Today, you know, it's kind of breaking news, but I've been following it and certainly in these times has been writing about it is the effort to unionize Starbucks. Um, Because, you know, I I mentioned before this lack of a cohesive movement behind uh, Joe Biden that's pushing him. I think the green shoots that are that are actually being activated is the labor sector and all this, uh, you know, action, this militant labor action that's happening through, you know, people called October Striketober and are referring to this strike wave. If you look at Kellogg's or like the John Deere workers, IATSE almost went on strike, certainly used a strike threat to get a better contract. Um, that there has been, you know, militant labor action both within existing unions and work to organize other unions. I mean, one of the biggest stories of this past year was the effort in Bessemer, Alabama to um, organize the Amazon warehouse there. That failed, but the NLRB has called for a new election because they found that uh, the there was some funny business Amazon was doing with their, you know, uh, ballot boxes and stuff. So they basically broke, the company broke the rules and now NLRB has called for a new election. Now, today in upstate New York, there's been this effort in Buffalo to unionized Starbucks stores and Starbucks has nearly 9,000 stores across the country. And this is the first one just today, the NLRB counted the votes and at least one of the three stores there in Buffalo is, uh, has voted to unionize. That's incredible. And that can, you know, help to open the door towards, um, organizing a massive, uh, powerful company. You know, Howard Schultz was one of the most powerful people in our politics, and he was the former CEO of, uh, of Starbucks, and he did all these all this effort to, to break the union there, and yet they've succeeded. So I think if you look down, you know, people want better conditions in their lives, and certainly in the workplace. Um, and the successes that we're seeing on the labor front are really encouraging and showing how people on a local level, like you mentioned, are uh, coming together to fight for their own um, dignity on the job. Um, Elon Musk and billionaire class be screwed, you know, I, I have uh, that, that story broke right before we went on the air about Starbucks. A friend of mine sent me the link. He was so excited about it. I have not had an opportunity uh, to, um, uh, to read the specifics, uh, but uh, go get. Let me hold on. Here we go. Yay for Starbucks! Starbucks workers at a Buffalo store form union in a contentious vote. That's the headline in the New York Times story. So uh, is that essentially saying that a one store in one Starbucks store in Buffalo uh, will has voted to uh, form a union? Is that correct? Uh, just one yeah. store out of in Buffalo. Well, that's the first one that they counted and in, in, in Elmwood and in Buffalo. I, th- I think there's two other stores there and then maybe um, another one somewhere in the Buffalo area. But then there's also been moves to unionize stores, uh, at least two other stores elsewhere in the country since those campaigns started off. Those haven't been voted on yet. But so I think, I mean, the story's still developing. I don't know if NLRB has finished its count on all the ballots, but yes, at least that first store in Elmwood is going to be unionized now. 
All right. Well, that is important. And this gets at the contradictions of the Democratic Party. Uh, when I think locally, when I think in Illinois, I think that Michael Madigan, uh, who was the former chair of the Democratic Party uh, and the House Speaker and generally considered the most powerful uh, legislator uh, in Springfield for years and years and was largely vilified, very successfully vilified by the powers that be in the city. And for good reason. All right. I won't go into the whole history of Michael Joseph Madigan, but I, I, I will resist that temptation to do it. But for me, as an old lefty, I really respected and appreciated the role he took for whatever reason. Maybe it was just a raw political calculation as opposed to something in his heart. I have no idea what's in Michael Madigan's heart or mind, but he took a very strong union stand from uh, for 2014 to 2018 during the Bruce Rauner years and was pounded for his stand by the Chicago Tribune, the Republican Party, Kenny Griffith, uh, Bruce Rauner, uh, and he was turned into the epitome of what this just corrupt big city Democratic chieftain and it's just widely despised uh, throughout uh, the state uh, or at least uh, by people uh, right of center. And Miles, I got to say, to me, it was his finest moment. He stood up for union rights. Uh, and I see a re reluctance on the part of so many. Now, this gets to that Clintonian uh, Obama worldview. I just see a reluctance for the Clintons and the Obamas of the Democratic Party to just boldly stand up for union rights to join union uh, to join employees when they're trying to form a union i mean remember how obama stayed out of wisconsin it was an existential struggle for the soul of the democratic party in wisconsin the the struggle uh in 2012 over the attacks that scott walker was making against municipal employees obama was nowhere in that and i just feel as though the democratic parties it's not just the issue of woke which is a whole other story, but they also are reluctant to join. Like, I don't know. Are there any Democrats? Help me here, Miles. I'm trying to think. Are there any Democrats other than Bernie or AOC who have supported the Starbucks workers in Buffalo? Has Bill Clinton issued a statement on behalf of the Starbucks workers in Buffalo or Hillary Clinton or any Joe Biden, for that matter? Has anybody? Have I missed that? There's a reluctance, I think, among the Democratic establishment to try to get too involved in any individual labor campaign or, you know, conflict. That said, they want to be the champions of labor. They certainly want all the, you know, dues money from these unions to go towards their campaign coffers. That's why, you know, the um, unions are often some of the biggest political muscle for Democrats, as well as their biggest fundraising muscle in, uh, in election years. But what do they do with that? You know, where is that? Where are the results? And I think that um, that's something that's coming to a head. Uh, now, because Joe Biden claims to be the you know most pro labor president uh, ever, or at least you know since FDR. Well, if that's true, what are you doing? You know, like where are the where is that being played out? Um, they would might they might say the Pro Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which would be transformational labor legislation. But I don't see any kind of you know, act activity from coming from the White House or from Democratic leadership to get that passed. 
Um, there's only a few holdouts in the Senate to, uh, on the Democratic side. Just, you know, put your eggs in that basket. That would help to radically expand, probably double union membership um, in this country. Um, there are elements of that that are contained in the Build Back Better legislation, mainly um, fines on employers for election interference, which would actually be pretty transformative on its own because, you know, the reason, part of the reason these union elections often fail is because there's just crazy intimidation. I mean, talk to anybody that's tried to, like, organize a Walmart or whatever, you know, they're just facing nonstop employer intimidation, seeing anti-union videos, captive audience meetings, all that stuff. This would fine them for doing that and put on put on pretty hefty fines. So that's good, but is that even going to make it into the final legislation? Will Build Back Better actually pass? It clearly wasn't, you know, enough of a priority to have it linked to the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I think there's elements where you can see the way that the Democratic Party likes to cheer on labor and claim the mantle of being pro-worker when actually not delivering for um, for working people. Another example, if I could just take a more local one, is you might you might have read that Obama just got this hundred million dollar uh, donation uh, from Jeff Bezos, from the head of Amazon, to go to the library. Uh, on the south side, you know, to go Obama's library to make a plaza that is supposedly going to be named after at Bezos's request, named after John Lewis. Um, this is the same Jeff Bezos that just put all of his effort into crushing that union campaign in uh, Bessemer, Alabama, so much so that the NLRB said they acted illegally and that they have to do a revote. If Obama, you know, here's he, here he's, you know, taking money for his library from the guy who's trying to crush, you know, one of the most historic union drives in the country, that kind of tells you something about where people actually stand on this um, conflict between bosses and workers. Because let me tell you, that is the fundamental conflict, you know, like which side are you on is a real question in these um, situations. And you can't just pretend to side with one when you're really, you know, cozying up to the other. And I think that that's a message that Democrats nationally really need to um, need to learn. Oh, that is uh, that's a great point. I hadn't uh, drawn that uh, that connection, but yeah. Uh, so what the Obama Center is doing is uh, paying its way uh, more or less with uh, by private fundraising, which means they they have to turn over to people like uh, Jeff Bezos uh, to help out. Uh, they don't want to ask for too much public funds because they don't. That would cause sort of an eruption if you will this to see that being turned into a uh, uh a political football and yet one could argue well if you if it's a legitimate presidential library which it's not even a legitimate presidential library uh it could be you could it warrants public funding uh so yeah that's <laughs> the tale of the obama center on so many fronts uh shows the inconsistencies uh, of the Democratic Party, to put it mildly. Um, all right, uh, go ahead. We should also say that John Lewis was a lifelong, you know, advocate for workers' rights and labor rights. So it's almost like a cruel joke that, like, the Bezos-funded plaza is going to be named after John Lewis when, you know, it's like John Lewis actually gave a crap about the, you know, plight of working people, and yet his name is being invoked in the same sentence as Jeff Bezos, the tech billionaire overlord, you know? Yeah, no, I listen, I, I'm, I'm telling you, uh, 
this is a deeper conversation, but uh, American capitalism uh, is really shrewd at absorbing uh, just all the different cultural strands of America, uh, co-opting them, it may be another word. And I remember this from the Apple's campaign uh, back in the 90s and the O's where you would, they used images of uh, uh, Muhammad Ali and Martin Luther King. Uh, and I think they may have thrown Bob Dylan up there, you know, to sell their computers. Uh, <laughs> and I'm just like, man, this, you, you, you got to give these guys credit and, and Starbucks the same way. They position themselves as this sort of more or less, I have it in quotes, progressive, very woke to use the term, uh, corporation. And yet they've just vehemently resist very paternalistic in their attitude about unions and workers vehemently resist, uh, the union. No, really much, much different than Walmart, which positions itself, on the opposite side of the cultural uh, divide. So, yeah, you're right, uh, uh, Miles. It's, uh, and I'd just like to point out that uh, John Lewis, of course, is great uh, uh, a assistant and aide and uh, advisor and ally of uh, Martin Luther King, who was killed uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, while he was standing up uh, for uh, the union efforts of the sanitation workers of Memphis. That's where he, why he was in Memphis. He was killed. Very much an economic justice issue. All right, let's talk about um, dealing with uh, MAGA. And I sent you this article uh, that uh, it's getting more and more bizarre on this front. Uh, and I'm probably going to do a deep dive with uh, Ramana Hussein tomorrow on this. This is one of her uh, passions. She loves to talk about it, and I do too. Uh, it started off with uh, Congresswoman Boebert going after uh, Representative Omar, uh, very um, Islamic phobic attacks on her. Uh, and uh, and now it's just like broadening the um, the uh, Republicans like uh, Lauren Boebert and um, I'm blanking on Tillis is his name, have been sending out Christmas cards that show their family armed with weaponry. It's like it sure looks like a threat to me uh, in the and this is in the aftermath, right? Like this, these cards are going out right after the uh, Michigan shooting, the, the shooting at the public school uh, in um, in Michigan. And uh, AOC fired back. You know, uh, I got to give her credit. I always give her credit. Miles, it seems like she's the one who's not afraid to take strong stands uh, let the chips fall where they may, you know, and, um, but talk about this, talk about what you, in your op opinion, Democrats should do about the, uh, the violent rhetoric that's coming from Republicans, uh, in their, uh, tweets, their speeches, and now apparently uh, their subterranean messages with the entire family standing in front of a Christmas tree with, uh, machine guns and rifles, et cetera, and so forth. What should Democrats do uh, in the face of this hostility? I, I like, you know, the Christmas season and hanging out with family and stuff. And we even like to get a Christmas tree and everything. But I think one way to get rid of this whole issue with the guns in front of the Christmas trees on the cards is just stop sending out Christmas cards with your family in front of the tree. Just, you know, we don't need any more of that. Like we've seen, you know, if you want to put together a nice family 
photo, that's fine. But it doesn't need to be in front of the tree. It's just like it's a we. It's a weird American thing. It needs to be in front of the tree. Um, but specifically when it comes to guns, this is, it's a threat. I mean, there's no, there's no other way to take it when, you know, Lauren Boebert's been on this, uh, campaign to denigrate Ilhan Omar, uh, representative from Minnesota by calling her, um, part of the jihad squad. She says that, you know, she thought she had a, um, like compared her to a suicide bomber said she, you know, she looked around to see if she had a backpack when she was in the Capitol to see if she had to run away as if Ilhan Omar was going to set off, uh, an explosive. I mean, this is, um, the exact type of, uh, rhetoric and actions that lead to hate crimes, um, against Muslims and certainly, um, build a, uh, a, an atmosphere in which it's much more dangerous to, you know, walk around in a hijab or to, you know, pre- pre- openly present yourself um, as Muslim because Lauren Boebert's a star. You know, she's not like a, a fringe figure on the right or even in American politics at this point. She's being celebrated um, for this type of activity. And, you know, you turn on Fox News that's, you know, what you're seeing is a celebration of her and it's certainly a defense. And when that happens, it doesn't just normalize her behavior. It's going to inspire other people to think they have um, the freedom to do that too, you know, without facing any consequences. And I think that's why it's important that, you know, AOC just did like a snide uh, tweet about it. Like, why are you, you know, if, if anything is denigrating Christmas, like the right's always like, oh, the left has a war on Christmas. Um, and they're trying to like take it away from its original meaning of the birth of Jesus and manger and Bethlehem and all that. Well, if anything's going to denigrate Christmas, you think it'd be holding an AK in front of a, a, a tree, you know, that's like, it's a wild version. If, that, if you think that's like in line with the original Christmas story, I don't even know. Like that's wild stuff. So AOC kind of called her out for that. But more importantly, I think, you know, to answer your question, she needs to face consequences. Like she should not be on committees. She should not be in the U S Congress. I mean, I think she should be expelled um, as Corey Bush has called for. Um, but I also believe in democracy. I mean, I think that, you know, she is an elected representative, so it's a little hard. Like her, you know, her constituents did vote for her in office. And the best way to, you know, affect political choices is to, like, offer something better, you know, to, like, try to, like, make sure she loses um, politically. But the least you could do is to send through what you did with Paul Gosar, you know, when he posted a video of, like, killing AOC in anime form, you know, they did censure him and try to get him off of his committees. Um, Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the GOP in the house might very well try to elevate, you know, Boebert to, you know, kind of give her a gift for being so racist. Um, if, if, and when they take over the house in 2022 or 2023, um, But for now, I think there needs to be a line in the sand drawn and AOC and like squad members are like the only ones doing it. I mean, Pelosi just deflected and said, like, it's the job of the Republican Party to get their own members in control. Well, that's not happening. You know, so there has to be some type of a um, a political pushback. So I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, one thing we could do to stop this whole thing on the basic level is stop sending out Christmas cards. The second thing we do is definitely to get the, you know, censure or make, you know, Bobert lose her committee assignment. So she's not actually holding, uh, any 
significant power in the Congress. Well, I would like to believe that uh, the um, violence, the implicit violence uh, in that Christmas card, like the the violence in the Gosar tweet, uh, and just the violence and the rhetoric of the Republican Party in general, their um, their adulation they're expressing for Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, and the deeds he did. I would, I would like to believe that a majority of American voters would be appalled by that. And, and I, I felt somewhat vindicated uh, miles after the 2020 presidential election, because I felt the same way. I just think a majority of, of voters in this country have got to be appalled by the behavior of Donald Trump. Forget the policy, just the, the behavior. And um, so I would like to believe that there will be a repudiation again in 2022. The problem is if with gerrymandered maps, I don't know if it's possible to hold on to the house, which would be the ultimate repudiation. Uh, And there's no effort whatsoever in the Republican party to sort of clean itself up. You you follow me? There's no, I I see no effort from anybody in the Republican party with the possible exception of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger who are on the outs with uh, the mainstream of the Republican party now uh, to um, change the, the code of conduct that Republicans are operating under. So I, I feel that the Democrats, I am with you. The Democrats have to uh, shine a spotlight on it uh, and force all Republicans to uh, be accountable for the behavior of Boberts and uh, Gosars and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, and so like here in Illinois, every single Republican legislature, every single Republican congressional candidate, every single Republican statewide cam- candidate should be asked about this. Uh, I feel as though that should be a very compelling theme raised. Uh, and that moves, and that gets away from all the very complicated co- conversations uh, topics we've been having like you know trying to get the country to rally behind something like uh medicare for all or trying to get the country to rally uh behind uh gerryman- eradicating gerrymandering etc and so forth you know what i'm saying i mean this i don't know it seems to me that this there should be uh it should this is unacceptable political behavior and as a i think the democrats uh, should pound away at that one. I really do. I think I think you're completely right, and I think that you the point you make is really critical. That you know the best way to repudiate it is to for Democrats to stay in power. You know, like if you want to be able to like rein in that type of behavior and make sure that's not just let to run amok, then make sure that Kevin McCarthy doesn't become the next um, speaker. But you know, Joe Biden won seven million more votes than Donald Trump did in 2020, and yet it just came down to a few states, yeah. uh, you know, because and and tens of thousands of votes in those states because of our anti-democratic structures. And the same thing with the House. I mean, it's you know, the House is at least more democratic than the Senate. But like, it doesn't matter if a vast majority of Americans disagree with that behavior if enough voters in this, these gerrymandered districts. Um, are, you know, listen to enough ads about the threat of, you know, communism coming from the Democrats and why we need to, you know, protect our American way of life from it. Um, But I think, can I just give a quick little recipe for how that can happen? I think that, you know, if, because I don't want to be too doom and gloom, even though I think, you know, there's 
there's some bleakness in terms of a prospects for progressive renewal. Um, I think that the what Democrats need to and can still do is to, you know, first of all, pass this social spending bill before the end of the year, um, you know, so it actually gets done. So they have something to go into 2022 to cheer about so that, you know, we have expand the extend the child tax credit get pre-k get child care get some form of family leave in there you know do this um kind of progressive omnibus that also has tons of money for you know affordable housing other things that'll directly impact people's lives then immediately move on and pass the you, you know um john lewis act or for the people some democracy some actual democracy reform that will protect against the type of intense voter suppression and intimidation efforts that the right is trying to do and then biden should just get get in there cancel student debt which he can do um pass you know some type of uh sending money out to people before the midterm elections you know get people another stimulus because god knows omicron's still here people are still screwed you know like get people some direct money and give people a reason to identify the democratic party with making their lives better and easier you know that would that would be i think a recipe for hopefully retaining power in the house and biting it back against these historical trends i don't have super high hopes that it'll happen but those are some basic things that very easily the democratic party could still do with their current makeup in congress all right that uh a little uh, optimism amidst the gloom and doom is as good a place as any to uh, uh to end the conversation for the moment because I, I i could get a lot of gloom and doom if I go too deep, uh, Miles, before we let you go, give a shout out to any uh, stories that in the times uh, it, that in these times is published recently that you want folks to know about. Yeah, of course. Well, we have a great article speaking of um, the I'm sure we'll do some coverage of the um, election at the Starbucks uh, location in um, in Buffalo. But we also published a great piece by um, this writer, Derek uh, Seedman called the union busters on Starbucks board of directors. And it's a look into the people that uh, make up the the board at Starbucks and all of their um, ties to anti-union groups. And it goes into at the, the point you were making earlier about the kind of progressive image that the company tries to project versus it's really virulent um, anti-worker activities. Um, we also have a piece on um the Columbia University strike that's ongoing. Um, that's the biggest strike right now. I think it's like, you know, tens of thousands of uh, students out at, at Columbia on the streets. Um, and we have a, a piece by my colleague Hamilton Nolan that I recommend people read that's all about the, you know, there was this um, big story in the Atlantic by Barton Gelman. Um, you might've read about, you know, the threat to our democracy and it goes into what I was mentioning earlier, kind of these, um, threats by Trump and, um, Trumpists to carry out what they failed to do in 2020 in 2024 and, you know, actually steal the election. Um, and Hamilton kind of breaks down how there's, what I've been talking about as well, that there's so many anti-democratic structures already baked into the U.S. Constitution itself that we need to fix um, that allowed for elections to be stolen already, like happened in 2000 with um, with Bush and Gore. Um, so just giving a little bit more historical context to that panic and, and, and hopefully lighting a fire under uh, Democrats who claim to want to, you know, and 
enshrined democracy in America, um, saying that it's not enough to just stop Trump. You got to actually change uh, the systemic structures that are in place that you know will allow people to actually be represented in the halls of power. All right, very good. In these times, I'm going to check out that Hamilton Nolan article. It sounds really good. Uh, Miles, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate uh, you coming on the show and supporting the show all these years. And I don't know if I'll talk to you before uh, Christmas. So Merry Christmas. And uh, yes, uh, just send out positive vibrations for Christmas. Okay, folks, no violence embedded uh, in your Christmas messages would be a really helpful thing to do. Uh, so go Bulls. Uh, happy uh, Christmas and everything to you, Miles. I'll talk to you. Uh, I don't know. I'll probably talk to you before the end of the year. Maybe do a year wrap up. All right. Sounds good. All right, that's a great Miles Conflassen. And uh, I want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of all in Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And it's Hamilton Nolan. Miles Conflassen and Bernie Sanders will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Yes.